When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. And welcome to Planet Normal, a Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Co-pilot Pearson and I are having a well-deserved summer break from steering the rockets of right thinking. But to help keep you sane, dear citizens of Planet Normal, during the month of August we'll be bringing you some classic interviews from our Planet Normal archive over the last year. The discussions we've had on our flying refuge of reasoned views. In March, to mark three years since the government put the UK into lockdown, we did a series of Planet Normal lockdown specials. In episode one, we heard anew from various Planet Normal lockdown heroes, people who spoke out about the dangers and the collateral damage of lockdown long before it became fashionable, when to do so, in fact, was to be pilloried by much of the UK's political and media class. We're about to hear from State of Fear author Laura Dodsworth, leading oncologist Professor Pat Price, Tory backbencher Sir Graham Brady, George, our secret planet normal source from within the NHS, the first cabinet minister to resign over lockdown, Lord David Frost, and finally, from business supremo, Luke Johnson. So how did Laura Dosworth feel in March 2020 when lockdown was first announced? I felt shock, first of all, just pure shock. And I had a fear response. My fear response, in a way, was to just freeze. And no doubt, partly, that's why I've written a book about fear. So although I was initially worried about the virus because there were so many unknowns, my fear was directed at the authoritarian approach. I felt disorientated that things I'd taken for granted, things I thought were real, were actually something of an illusion, like liberty, calm and rational thinking, my ability to go out and work and earn a living and respect for democracy. I realised that liberty and democracy were minority interests, a bit like opera or bridge. It turns out that threat obliterates a commitment to what we think of as the bedrocks of our society. And I remember being so disturbed by the emergency legislation, which was extremely draconian, that it, it literally kept me awake at night. There was talk in that time of solidarity and being in it together. But actually, the effect of the mask, the instructions not to hug, the inability to not see each other, the encouragements to complain and report rule breaking really drove people apart. And this is one of the things I objected to the most, that, that use of fear and shame and scapegoating and guilt really sickened me. It was plain wrong that psychologists recommended raising the level of personal threat. And then the government operationalised it and they operationalised it for months. I think it's created a mental health impact that's destroyed this generation. And we're not really going to be able to count the cost for years. 
So I think in terms of acknowledging the damage, we're a really long way off. One example of the cognitive dissonance that I'm talking about is that four of the advisors on SPY-B have written an article in the British Medical Journal, which is basically an opportunity for them to say, it wasn't us that did it, it was the government that frightened people. We didn't recommend it, we'd never do that. Now, they very selectively quoted the SPY-B minutes that state very clearly that they said that the level of personal threat had to be raised among those who were complacent. Of course, what those minutes never did, what they couldn't have done, what they don't acknowledge in this article, is how you would go about raising the sense of threat among those who are complacent. What the psychologists recommended and what the government did was operationalise fear to the whole population with messages like, don't kill granny. Basically, they put that fear, they put that shame and guilt on a whole generation of young people. But I think there's quite a lot of hope, even in articles like that at the moment, because what it shows is a defensiveness. People want to distance themselves from something which is increasingly over time, looking quite obviously to be ethically and morally the wrong thing to have done. I think it's so hard to say how people in the future are going to judge the UK's lockdown. I think one group of people we didn't hear enough from during the lockdown was the historians. History takes time. It's going to take more than a generation's distance to summon up the honesty required to judge lockdown. For me, it's been a huge learning experience about human nature. I think I felt it in common with a lot of people as a kind of existential crisis because what we witnessed in real time was the mass evocation of fear and compliance. And that was done by leveraging human biases that we normally like to play down. We normally like to play down our confirmation bias towards authority and social norms and social approval. And what we saw was the state mercilessly leveraging those biases to make us follow lockdown rules. I think that's going to be a really difficult thing for people to face up to. And so I think the question isn't just how historians judge the UK's lockdown, but how Everybody is going to be able to judge this time morally, but given the perspective of time. Pretty astonishing there, Alison, from Laura Dodsworth. So many of the buttons that she pressed in her book, which came out in mid-2021, have been completely vindicated by the lockdown files exposed by The Telegraph, revealing those WhatsApp messages that ministers were sending and the fact that her book has become a bestseller is in my view fully deserved. Our next returning guest today is Lord David Frost who resigned from the cabinet in December 2021 of course appearing on Planet Normal soon after and Lord Frost's resignation did a lot to help convince the then Prime Minister to avoid cancelling yet another Christmas by renewing those strict lockdown measures. So how did David Frost feel three years ago when lockdown was first announced? I was, like so many people in Number 10 that March at home, recovering from a bout of COVID. I'd never had a test, but I was short of breath, struggling to get upstairs, this kind of thing. So fairly clear what had happened. And I remember sitting at home and watching on the Prime Minister make this announcement and being genuinely incredulous. You know, we'd seen it happen in China, in Italy, in other places in Europe, but I simply could not believe that it was happening in in Britain. And that remained my view for the next couple of years. 
there will be a hangover, medical, educational, economic, attitudinal, all that kind of thing. But I do think that it's important not to get bogged down in a debate about did the medical consequences outweigh the economic ones or the other way around. I think it's quite hard to define that while the pandemic is going on. And I think it's more important to re-establish the principle that it's wrong to lock people in their houses. You know, that should be the starting point. And the idea that you can come up with a trade-off that you can be confident of while this thing is happening seems unlikely to me. So that's the first thing. We need to get back to the principle. I think second, the biggest damage is probably going to be psychological attitudinal. I think people can recover from trauma. All history shows this. Terrible things have happened. But they need to have agency. They need to have power to do so. They need to be able to kind of control their own lives and get on with them. But I worry that the biggest impact from COVID is that people look to the government to do everything. And that view is there already, but I think the pandemic reinforced it. A sense of disempowerment, lack of control over your own life. And if people don't feel that, then they're going to find it much, much harder to recover. Last thing, I think one of the really damaging effects is that the pandemic has normalised the idea that some things can't or should not be said. We saw the informal control of social media, of videos, all this sort of thing. And I think we are still living through that and we'll see it applied to other areas in future. So I think the damage goes beyond the pure economic. It's going to be hard to assess. There's lots of informal, attitudinal, societal stuff that we will have to come to terms with in the next few years. I think, to be honest, they're going to see this as a moment of governmental overreach and of collective hysteria, where we all went a little bit crazy and it's going to take us time to recover. As for myself, I think I will never believe again it can't happen here. I think I've now learned that anything can happen here if the conditions are right. And I hope we digest the consequences of that. Now, coming to our third hero of lockdown, one of Planet Normal's most valuable contributors has never appeared on the podcast and we have never been able to reveal their name, strange but true. To avoid being sacked from a senior job in NHS England, this brave individual became known simply as George. Throughout the pandemic, George provided us with up-to-the-minute hospital data, which often contradicted alarmist claims made at the Downing Street briefings. George also taught us about nosocomial infections. There it is. <laughs> One of Alison's favourite words. <laughs> and the way that the number of hospital admissions could be inflated by counting patients who had not come in for treatment with COVID, but had merely tested positive. George, you're amazing. We couldn't have done it without you. Just to warn you, we have changed his or her voice so that they cannot be identified and scapegoated. So when lockdown first happened, I could say I felt a sense of despair. I felt like I was the only person who felt like that. And so it was really isolating. You know, at the time, everybody was panicking about themselves and how it was going to affect their families. And I remember thinking, I felt like shouting into the wind, what is going to happen to these people? You know, people who are stuck with domestic abuse in homes who suffer from that, children with abusive parents, partners with abusive 
spouses or partners or so on. And I just felt like nobody was thinking about that. Children separated, families also, you know, that was a situation I was in, sharing custody of my son. Nothing felt like it had been thought through. So it just felt really frustrating. And for working in and around government and policy for about 17 years, any policy that's made on the hoof is usually always bad. So you could already see what the consequences were. I mean, at work, there was no way of challenging the hypothesis that we were going to be overwhelmed and swamped. And the other thing was that within, I wasn't working directly on the COVID response. So there were there were pockets of people who were working on trying to maintain other services, mainly for cancer patients and so on. There was quite a bit of thought had gone into how those services could be maintained. But I think what nobody realised, what nobody foresaw, was that referrals would just stop. Well, they didn't stop exactly, but they reduced to about 30% of their normal level. So and that was something we discovered within about two weeks of the first lockdown happening. So by the end of the week, beginning the 30th of March, there was already a massive reduction in people coming forward for cancer referrals. By the time we get to October 2020, we already knew that there was a growing backlog of people not coming forward for cancer treatment, not starting cancer treatment, and that backlog was growing. We could see it even in the limited amount of monthly data that we had from the start of the lockdown to that point. So obviously we knew that there was probably a wave of COVID coming, but we also knew that there was this growing backlog. And where was the voice of people speaking up for those patients, trying to discourage further lockdowns? It felt like there's a level of complicity within the NHS in creating the difficulties that they currently find themselves in, and that has not been acknowledged. So the inability to accept that responsibility that we see amongst politicians and that, you know, they all, everything's always there's a reason or there's a spin answer, that also applies to the NHS. Nobody said, hang on a minute, we did take our eye off the ball and this is what we're going to do about it. I hope very much they will judge it as a catastrophe, failure of governance and leadership, failure to put in any kind of robust thought about the benefits and the costs of any policy that needs to be done, that has to happen in order for good policy to be made. I do wonder how we'll eventually judge what the impact is on the structure and governance of the NHS. I mean, I think many of us within the NHS, it's difficult to get your voice heard above the sort of this assumption of consensus that we all agree that everything is the way it should be. I don't think that's necessarily the case, but it's very difficult to find other people who agree with you. So I hope we might look back at the lockdowns as being a catalyst to a really meaningful change in the structure and the organisation of the NHS. I mean, that wouldn't bring back or alleviate the impact of the current situation on, on lots of people that's having and continues to have. But I do think that nationally, the blinkers have started to come off when it comes to the sort of like NHS worship that we've had. And that's probably due to lockdown. So it could be a benefit if it leads to a meaningful change in the way the NHS is organised. I have to say, Alison, George has played such a huge role in the success of Planet Normal since we began. Yeah. He or she has shown enormous professional and moral courage in feeding us data, often responding directly to requests from expert Planet Normal listeners, countering often the official narrative, which we knew even before the lockdown files, but now we clearly know the official narrative that was often quite deliberately skewed in order to maintain that climate of fear. 
Now, Sir Graham Brady first appeared on Planet Normal in January 2021. The MP for Orchingham and Sale West is, of course, chair of the 1922 Committee of Backbench MPs. Now, given that the Labour frontbench was, if anything, even more consistently gung-ho for lockdown than the government, it did fall to the 1922 Committee to provide parliamentary opposition. And Sir Graham and many of his colleagues were deeply shocked at the government power grab which lockdown represented. And the COVID recovery group of MPs did much to challenge that state overreach, bringing lockdown to an end. So again, we asked Sir Graham Brady those three planet normal questions. How did you feel in March 2020 when lockdown was announced? Has the collateral damage been sufficiently recognised? And finally, how will future historians judge the UK's lockdown? Well, I think everybody was a bit shocked by what was happening. But equally, nobody really understood how serious the virus was. Nobody really had a grip on how deadly it was or how easily it might spread. So I think even though a lot of us felt really quite uneasy about it, uh, we were also prepared to accept that the government felt it had to act uh, very quickly in case this was on a scale of something like Ebola virus, which kills a very large percentage of the people who catch it. You know, I was, I was sort of quite tolerant of the lockdown at the start. What surprised me was that as we learned much more about coronavirus, and within three or four weeks, we knew that it wasn't nearly as dangerous for younger people or people with no pre-existing medical conditions, nothing changed that the extreme lockdown policy was just maintained. It was originally meant to be there for three weeks, and it ended up being there for three months, and then was brought back again very soon afterwards. So I suspect it'll be some years before we really have a properly balanced view. But thank God for Sweden, thank God for Florida, and those places around the world, very few in number, which took a more balanced, more rational approach. Most of the world joined in the madness. And if we didn't have those other countries or states as a measure, then it would be far harder to demonstrate that what was done was not only ineffective, uh, but really very damaging. I think it, it has to be said that the UK was far from alone. Britain locked down, but around the world, most countries joined in with these completely untried and tested lockdown policies. In previous pandemics, it's been accepted as a reasonable measure to try to restrict the movement of people who are known or reasonably expected uh, to be infected. This is the first time that countries around the world have decided to lock down whole populations. And so I think historians will have to look globally what happened. I don't think the British government will be judged significantly more harshly than most others around the world. But looking at those countries which had the steadiness and resolve to hold their nerve, uh, thinking especially of, of Sweden, I think there will certainly be a historical judgment that says some countries, a very few, had the courage and the common sense to do it right most tragically didn't. And that will have very serious consequences for very large numbers of people around the world for decades to come. Well, um, Sir Graham Brady, one of the most sort of honest voices during a time when Parliament <laughs> basically was absent from the scene. I know it's something that Graham feels very keenly as a great parliamentarian. 
Now on to our next lockdown hero, Professor Pat Price first appeared on Planet Normal in August 2022. Pat is an internationally renowned clinical oncologist, the chair of Radiotherapy UK. During lockdown, Pat Price became increasingly alarmed at the shutting down of treatment for cancer patients as the NHS became to some extent a COVID-only service. Pat Price co-founded the Catch Up With Cancer campaign and she continues to be one of the most impassioned voices speaking up for the need to urgently address the backlog and the vast damage lockdown did to tens of thousands of sick people, many of whom are tragically now dead or dying. How did Pat feel in those very early weeks of the first lockdown? Well, gosh, the situation in cancer was just dire. It's not so much the lockdown itself, but the NHS response to this Within the first couple of days, the phone started ringing. Cancer patients were literally being phoned to have their cancer operations stopped and cancelled, and there was no plan. And so they were asking us what to do. One phoned back the hospital and was literally told to phone round a few private hospitals and see whether anybody could help. An absolute disaster. Then you suddenly realised that there was no plan for cancer. All this COVID planning, all these other things, nothing for cancer. And it was then such a massive problem. People kept phoning and phoning and you realised it was a complete mess. I tell you, honestly, some nights I would cry in bed thinking, I just cannot believe people are being left by this. The NHS, what's their response? They tell us it's okay. And now with the WHO advice being every country should have a cancer plan, what do we do? We say we won't have a cancer plan. It is horrible and unbelievable this can be going on. They had a target for recovering from the cancer problem by March 21. The now the target is March 24. So that's four years just to recover from the damage that's been done to cancer in COVID. And I'm not sure they'll meet that target anyway. This is an absolute disaster. We can't avoid a pandemic, but we could have avoided this cancer catastrophe. I think some bits were good. I think some people will judge some of it. We did very well. We did very well with the vaccines. But we will also judge some things as very poor. We went into COVID with the worst survival figures in the Western world. And due to our lack of capacity, we have just plummeted in our survival. We will be plummeting in our survival rates now. Now, my concern is that we're in denial. We've not learned from this. What we learned from COVID is how to do things better. That vaccine programme, cast away bureaucracy, get it done, whatever you need to do. We could do that with cancer, but we don't learn. We're in denial. We're not even using the technologies like radiotherapy in my own area. There is so much now that can be done. But no, we just carry on doing the same thing. So we will look back and see that we ignored cancer at our detriment, and we will probably end up losing more people unavoidably to cancer than we would have done in the COVID pandemic. It may be 10 years till we recover, and we seem to have lost an ambition, lost cancer as a priority, too difficult to deal with pile. It's a disaster. One in two people in the UK are going to get cancer. By 2040, there will be 500,000 people a year with cancer the biggest killer in the UK, and we can no longer deal with it. It's a disaster. I'm, oh, I've gone through every emotion, sad, angry, furious, 
the worst emotion is that I'm terribly sad for the patients, but I'm furious that nobody's doing anything. Bad things happen when good men do nothing. Powerful stuff there from Pat Price, Alison, one of many medics who we brought to bear on Planet Normal. As early as June 2020, Carol Sikora, the cancer specialist, appeared on Planet Normal. Professor Gordon Wishart, another leading oncologist in September 2021. We had the anonymous nurse from the NHS we called Holly in July 2020. We had the anonymous GP Claire in November 2020. I think one of the major themes of Planet Normal has been the collateral damage on the NHS itself. And we have, haven't we, developed some deep contacts within the NHS who have bravely spoken out, sometimes, of course, having to speak out anonymously. Moving on to the ramifications of lockdown for the economy, Luke Johnson is the serial entrepreneur behind Pizza Express and the brilliant Gales Bakery. Luke first appeared on Planet Normal in July 2020, railing against the damage being done to the economy during lockdown, warning that the sharp downturn itself would cost lives, pointing to economic and corporate dangers, which back then few other business leaders dared to highlight. Now, Luke's father, the great journalist and historian Paul Johnson, died earlier this year, and it was uplifting to see Paul's blazing impatience with lies and cant living on so fiercely in his son. So what were Luke Johnson's thoughts back in March 2020? I think initially I was disbelieving because it seemed such a mad thing to do, to shut down the whole of society for a disease that clearly we knew very early 2020 was only really dangerous for the elderly and the sick and to close businesses, schools, everything, more or less, lock people in their homes virtually, which has never been proven to make any difference in terms of the real spread of the disease. It seemed to me a terrible mistake. Unfortunately, When people focus on the disease, they use this single measure of deaths. Whereas when you look at all the different harms it caused around society, it's a huge range and many of them are longer term. So, for example, I would argue that the current instability economically is at least in part directly attributable to shutting down the world economy for two years. That meant production fell. Meantime, governments like ours dished out, well, in our case, 400 billion of borrowings and spending, which caused huge inflation. That led governments to, in due course, too late, in fact, raise interest rates, which have now led to instability in our banks. And so it goes. And essentially, if you cut off productive activity, as we did for the two years 2020 and 2021, even into 2022, the unintended consequences are inevitably enormous. And so businesses going bust, people losing their jobs, taxes having to increase to pay the bills, record rates of people not in in the workforce. All these harms are direct or indirect consequences, an unscientific, extreme measure which has never been carried out before of lockdowns. Well, I think we've made catastrophic errors. I think for a start, the relentless propaganda from the government scaring 
the nation witless was probably more affected than in any other country, which is why, you know, there is so much exaggerated fear of the disease, treating this disease as if it's the only risk to life, which is clearly madness. There was no cost-benefit analysis, despite all our sophisticated modern tools. We didn't really even think for a second as to what all the other harms would be. And lockdown was a blunt instrument of the worst kind. There were imaginary short-term gains from doing this and terrible long-term damage. And I think society will judge public health experts and politicians and those who carried out this inhumane policy very harshly, and so they should. I have to say, Alison, I agree profoundly with what Luke Johnson said. Remember when we started Planet Normal and we were worried about the impact on our time We both convinced each other, didn't we, that Planet Normal would help us with our main gig, you know, with our our column writing for The Telegraph. Mm. I know you feel that your writing has been enhanced by Planet Normal, by the conversations we have, by the listener emails we get, by the input of the guests that we invite on Planet Normal. And I felt that even though I write very much an economics and business column. And I think Luke Johnson is on the money to coin a phrase when he talks about a catastrophic policy error. This was lockdown, the biggest domestic policy error, in my view, since the war. And just because other countries were doing it doesn't make it less forgivable, in my view. We created, or the Bank of England created, more money in the first year after lockdown than we did during the previous 10 years after the global financial crisis. And during that 10 years, the extent to which the Bank of England created money was pretty much historically unprecedented. So I do think we've stored up a huge number of problems, economic collateral damage, which has yet to be fully expressed. And that was State of Fear author Laura Dodsworth, oncologist Professor Pat Price, Tory MP Sir Graham Brady, our Planet Normal NHS source George, Lord David Frost, and at the end, businessman Luke Johnson. Also in March... Alison and I invited Swedish pandemic guru Anders Tegnell onto Planet Normal. Originally criticised for failing to lock down the entire nation, Sweden's approach to COVID has since been entirely vindicated by its low death rate and relative lack of collateral damage. Alison went to Sweden to ask Anders Tegnell what it was like to stand alone in the face of massive international criticism. Anders Tegnell, a very warm welcome to Planet Normal. Since the spring of 2020, we have been locked down sceptics on Planet Normal and you, Anders, and Sweden have been a beacon of rationality and hope to so many of us during some very strange, dark days in the UK. I'd like to begin with a Kipling poem. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowances for their doubting too. Now, famously, you did keep your head when all about were losing theirs in March 2020. And I'd like to ask, what gave you the confidence to hold your course and stick with voluntary measures in Sweden when public health experts in every other Western country were tearing up their pandemic plans? I think there was a number of factors involved in that. One of the factors is that it was, of course, not me as a person. It was the Public Health Agency of Sweden yes. uh, that we could do this together and that we were quite, all of us, content with, with following this course. And, and the background to that is 
partly because public health in Sweden usually work with voluntary measures, and we have very good experience with that. Mm. We usually quote our very voluntary childhood vaccination program, which is 98% of all children, without any forcing measures at mm. all. I think the other part of it is that we really felt and we knew that we had the public behind us. A number of polls showed that the confidence in the public health agency of Sweden was very, very high throughout the pandemic and still is very high. Mm. And I think that all gave us the confidence to, to continue and that the development were not really against us. I must say, I mean, the waves tend to come and go in Sweden very similar to they did in many other countries. Mm. But you presumably were mindful of the damage of these very strong restrictions, which what you saw elsewhere. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, our agency has the very broad responsibility in all areas of public health. And uh, the Swedish law and, and rules we have very much emphasizes proportionality, that you are not really allowed to take measures that can hurt more than they will gain. So that was very much in the back of our head. And we knew that, okay, I mean, closing schools is our favorite example, because that's so very clear. Uh, we all know that children are not allowed to and cannot attend to school. They fare much worse in the future, both health-wise, but also economy and, and many other aspects. I've been reading up and there was some internal opposition. There was uh, quite a lot of people in the press in Sweden who didn't think that you were doing enough fast enough. Were you aware of that opposition? How, how did you steel yourself against that? Yeah, of course. I mean, there's always, and I, I think that's good, and, and that's what democracy is all about, that we should have an open discussion. And of course, there are pros and cons to anything you do. So these um, different uh, other voices were all very much heard, uh, not least in the media. And the media also put those kind of questions to us constantly. So uh, yes, for sure. But we also knew, as I said, we knew that a great majority was behind what we were doing, including the scientific community. There's a difference in Sweden in that your team, the public health agency, were not interfered with with the politicians. Is that right? Was there a definite separation? Did they lean on you or did you did they let you get on with the job? No, I mean, there is a very clear division of labours between the, the agencies and the government. And that's established in law and it's established in mm. 400 years of tradition. And we, according to me, we, we kept that division of labors very clearly, which did not mean that we didn't talk to each other. I mean, my boss, our director, Johan Carlson, he talked to the politicians every day, mm. kept them informed about what we were trying to do and how we did it. And when we needed political decisions, we went to the government and discussed with them and we, and we got the political decisions we needed to have in place. So this was like we always should do in, in Sweden when we talk about crisis management. Management in a crisis should be the same as the management in peacetime. And that's very clear in, in the Swedish law and we, we kept on doing that. I heard you using the phrase ice in the stomach, which I think was Bjorn Borg's mantra when he went out onto the court. Did you feel it helped to be very cool? Are you quite a cool person, do you think, not buffeted about by political pressure? Yeah, any kind of pressure. Yeah, no, I'm, I've been working in this field for decades. Yeah. I feel very confident in what we were doing. And once again, I had a huge amount of colleagues around me and, and colleagues in academia all over the place, including the, the Swedish population, who sort of all said a good job. 
I know you've worked with many viruses, but you'd worked with Ebola. Was there some part of you which thought this virus doesn't look that deadly? It's not going to harm probably the younger population. Was that part of the thinking? Because in the UK, we had adverts saying all age groups are equally at risk. Now, that was never true, was it? No, and we were very clear about that, that the elderly are really the part of our population that we need to protect in different ways, and they need to protect themselves. And we also knew from the data we got both from China and Italy very early on that young children were extremely rare that they got really seriously ill from this. So I think this is one of the diseases I have worked with that makes the biggest difference between the young and the and the elderly. It, uh, being an old person was very, very much more dangerous than being a young person, especially during the first part. I mean, now when we have Omicron, it doesn't really hurt anybody very much anymore. No. So it's no. changed in that way. Yes. The president of Belarus claimed that the IMF offered him a bribe to impose a COVID lockdown. I don't think that's been verified But did you start to feel that there was international pressure on Sweden to fall into line as each country uh, adopted the same measures? Um, Not that reached us. No one tried to bribe you. (laughs) No, no, no. No, no, I mean, our politicians were also quite cool with this. I mean, as always, there was a huge amount of meetings between the EU ministers in different fora. And Mm. um, I think it went a bit up and down. Sometimes people were really wondering, what are you doing? But uh, quite often, I was also quite curious about how do you manage to keep it the way you do without strict lockdowns and so on. Sweden was painted. I mean, there was very sensational language. You personally were accused of playing Russian roulette with the population. The New York Times even called Sweden a pariah state. But isn't it the truth that it was the other countries that were embarking on a vast experiment by shutting down their societies? That had never been in pandemic planning, had it? No, not for a long time. I mean, if you go back to the Spanish flu, you can find instances when when they try to lock things down. But since then, it's never really been used, no. And in the pandemic plans we have been discussing during the last decades, uh, closing down society has never been on the agenda. And why then, do you think, the World Health Organization pandemic plan and other pandemic plans, the one we had in the UK, they never mentioned these draconian measures what was it? Was it pure panic, do you think? I mean, we, we never know. But, but I think it had a lot to do with what happened in China, which is, of course, a state, a country where things like this can be done and is done. Mm. And it seemed to work. And, and it did work to a certain extent, of course. And I think that really then made the agenda for many other places too. see what they do in China. It works. Let's do the same. I think it's as simple as that. It is the case, isn't it, that if you lock down, well, too soon, or if you lock down at all, that you postpone the problem, you don't solve it. Is that the case? Yeah, and there can be points in doing that, of course. I mean, if you know that your healthcare system needs a few weeks to ramp up their ICUs and... If you know that it's going to be a vaccine within a few months and so on, there are instances, of course, when when things can be a solution maybe. But normally, yes, as you said, all pandemics we have had have always sort of swept through the population fast or slow. Yes. I remember I tweeted in 2020 that I was glad that my 20-year-old son and his student friends in a house had got covid And they would have some immunity 
which would help protect their grandparents. That tweet, Anders, was labelled as misinformation. Mm. I was accused by thousands of people on Twitter of being a bad mother who wanted people to die. Why do you think the time-honoured principle of herd immunity suddenly became a dirty word? Because it was to a large extent misunderstood that we voluntarily, on purpose, wanted people to get sick as quickly as possible, which was never the case. We really wanted to have the spread as slow as we possibly could do with Mm. reasonable measures. Mm. And herd immunity, I mean, it's never a goal. Herd immunity is something that happens. Mm. It's an epidemiological fact. Nothing more, nothing less. And then herd immunity with this disease proved to be quite tricky because... Many people did not get fully immune. You got immune to being extremely sick, but Mm. you did not get completely immune to having the disease again and then maybe spreading it a bit. So herd immunity is not really plus or minus either. It's a complicated thing that we did not really understood very much about this disease in the beginning. And I still think we don't completely understood how herd immunity works with COVID-19. But you were people who talked about herd immunity were accused of callousness, Mm. of being happy for people to die. That's a misunderstanding. Uh, Yeah, completely. I mean, we did definitely try to protect the groups of the the population that were at a high risk of falling that ill and uh, maybe dying. That was one of the main purpose of the strategy in Sweden was really to protect the vulnerable groups. We had a very bad situation in our care homes because of uh, a lack of testing. We've just had a a leak of WhatsApp messages with the then health minister saying he was going to protect the care homes. But they were testing people coming from the hospitals into the old people's homes, but they weren't testing visitors coming in. And we did lose thousands of elderly relatives very, very sadly. You had a similar experience in Sweden. We had a very mild flu year in 2019. You could say there were a lot of elderly people who would have died in the winter of 2019 who were then taken by COVID in the spring of 2020. Was that a factor in Sweden? And how do you look back now on what you did and didn't do with the care homes with any regret or with doubt? Yeah, that was also a factor in Sweden, the the flu Epidemic the year before in Sweden was also very mild, which meant that there was quite a big group of very vulnerable, very fragile people around. And and that, of course, had some effect on this. Uh, When we now look back at the excess mortality, which we often use for when we want to see how bad something has been, especially the yearly flu epidemics, the total excess mortality in Sweden has turned out to be very low. It was high in the beginning, but since then it's been very low all the time. And now we're among the lowest in Europe. The elderly homes in Sweden has been a problematic thing for decades. The responsibility to take care of the elderly in Sweden moved from the regions to the communities uh, some 30, 40 years ago in a, in a famous reform. And the elderly homes that were established then were in many ways very good. They were very homelike, and, and, but they didn't really have an, enough medical expertise. And that's been criticized ever after that Lack of medical expertise would have such grave consequences uh, when we had a pandemic. I don't think anybody could 
imagine that. There has been a number of reviews of the system and everybody has said the same thing. You need to ramp up your medical expertise in these homes. And if you don't do that, you're going to have problems. And that should to be true. There is a number of things to that. I mean, one is that the personnel is not very well trained, very many of them. They work on an hourly basis, which is very bad in the Swedish context because it means if you stay home because you're feeling slightly ill for a day, you lose your pay. If you have a permanent position, you get your compensation for that. So people could have been going in, workers who were not well. Yeah, and I don't want to point finger to the workers because they really did the best they could, but they were poorly trained. They didn't have the possibility to really stay home when they should be able to stay home. Testing of them in the beginning was not very available. Uh, So there was a number of reasons why the COVID-19 fairly easily came into these homes. And once it was there, it was proven to be very, very difficult to control. And it's not only UK and Sweden who knows that by now. I think basically every country in the world has the same experience. So I think what we really need to do is to to have a better system for for taking care of our elderly, not least medically wise. And then Unfortunately, that's fallen off the radar for a bit in Sweden because there are so many other political things that are discussed these days, and it's very unfortunate. Just so Planet Normal listeners know, can you just tell us what your restrictions were? I think very early in March, you banned gatherings of 500 and over. What were the other things? What happened in restaurants and places like that? What we in general try to do is to figure out what are the places that are really dangerous. And we knew from experience from other countries that big gatherings were dangerous. Uh, That had been shown over and over again. For restaurants, we also knew that these are uh, tricky places. And we had big talks with the restaurant owners and we came up with a solution. Okay, we said, you need to restrict the number of people you let in. You're only allowed to serve at tables. You're only allowed to serve to groups that come there as groups already. So they don't meet new people when they go to restaurants. And that uh, thinks worked reasonably well because when we followed up afterwards, we see very few cases in restaurants. We also gave very strong advice to elderly people to try to avoid meeting other people inside, especially outside. We said reasonably okay. Uh, We had very strong messages about trying to work from home as much as possible. And that, I think, was probably one of the key things in the Swedish strategy. About 50% of the Swedish workforce worked from home. And that can be done in a country with the infrastructure and so on we have in place. And we also told people to stay home if you're feeling slightly ill in the morning. People actually did stay home. So we managed to get the number of people meeting each other down quite a lot because they didn't go to work. And we also managed to get most of the sick people to stay home, even if they were not tested. And so I think on the whole, we managed to get this social interaction to, to stop to a great extent. In the UK, I'll come on to what happened there, but Professor Carl Hennigan, he's Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford. The key word is evidence-based. And our Planet Normal friend, Professor Shanetra Gupta, Professor of Theoretical Epidemiology at Oxford, both very distinguished figures, they kind of became blacklisted. Their views, which I'm sure you would agree, were views which were the dominant orthodoxy of your trade, were suddenly silenced in not just in the UK, but across the Western world. Was that shocking to you? Yeah, surprising, because normally health is an area where evidence is important. In Sweden, it's even written into the law that healthcare should be managed and driven by evidence-based medicine, and that it was so quickly left. I've never been seen it during my decades of work in this area before. Was it groupthink? The path you took was lonely. Was it easier to take the other path? 
Yeah, it is. And I think it also, the precautionary principle is often cited. To me, it's cited in the wrong way. Because to me, the precautionary principle means that you should not act un- unless you have good evidence that what you do does more good than bad. But here, the precautionary principle was that do as much as you possibly can as quickly as possible, which is uh, normally against the precautionary principle. A number of things like that were, were used as arguments in a bit surprising way many times. This podcast will be released on the 23rd of March. That's exactly three years to the day that the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, abandoned the mitigation strategy and issued a stay-at-home order to the British people. One of the things that triggered that announcement was a report by Professor Neil Ferguson of Imperial College, and that got into the public. And it said that letting the COVID virus spread freely would result in 500,000 deaths Now, apparently that scenario was based on data from Wuhan and Italy. How how erratic or how bad do you think that modelling was and what effect did modelling have? I mean, we had worked with modelling quite a lot in our agency before and I think we we knew very much about both the strength and and the weaknesses of modelling. It can be a very nice tool if you use it the right way, but if you model with data that so far is is not of very high reliability, the results can be very, very tricky and you need to be very cautious about the results you get out of it. Because if you put in numbers into models that you use for other things and you don't know that those numbers are fairly much correct. You can arrive at very, very strange results sometimes. One criticism of lockdown was that it was okay for what they called the laptop classes, the professional middle class people. But of course, it was the ordinary, often poorer working people who had to go into the stores, make the deliveries to make that comfortable lockdown possible for more privileged people. Do you take that as a sort of criticism of lockdown? Yeah. And it was also to a certain extent a criticism of the advice we gave, that some of the advice we gave was, not, of course, not possible for everybody to follow out of economic or social or other circumstances. And I think that's a lesson we need to learn from, from this pandemic, that we have groups in our society that are very vulnerable, that are very much already normally big problems in, in public health. And we really need to be better to reach them and try to understand them and, and try to give them the tools they need to protect themselves in a much better way than we did during this pandemic. So in September, Andres, you were part of a video conference with 10 Downing Street and the Prime Minister was in that, Boris Johnson was in that conference, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who we have since learned was questioning lockdown a lot, but not getting very far. And also present were Professor Shanetra Gupta and Professor Carl Hennigan. I understand that that meeting was to talk about whether they should do a short so-called circuit breaker lockdown for the UK. What were your thoughts about that? Were you interested that you'd been asked? And did you think that you were being asked in good faith as a sort of person who had not taken the lockdown course to give them good advice? Yeah, I mean, I was a bit surprised. To be invited is not something that happens every day to get invited like that. I soon found out my role was very much to 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 give the background of the Swedish experience, not really to give advice, but just to give the kind of scenario or different scenario that uh, that we have been using in Sweden. And my impression was that they were quite open. They they tried to listen to the two different sides and and see what what arguments there were for yes. both sides. What do you think about this circuit breaker lockdown? I mean, it sounds quite sort of technical, but. 
what's the impact of that? I mean, presumably for every week you lock down, there will be then costs, not just to the economy, but costs in health and education, won't there? Yeah, that's part of it. There are different things to this. One, we learned quite soon that it's quite easy to start have different kind of restrictions, but it's very difficult to stop having them. Why? Mainly because it's difficult to communicate, I think, because normally having a short lockdown doesn't really, you don't see it really because it takes much longer for it to have effect. So it's very difficult to communicate, okay, why did we have a lockdown two weeks ago? We had the same amount of cases right now and we're going to stop having a lockdown. I think that's uh, communication-wise, it's very, very difficult to make that believable and trustworthy. But for a while then, there was this idea about this is the way we should handle the pandemic. We should have very strict measures and then take the hammer away and then sort of let it slowly build up again and then bam, again. But that never worked. I don't think it worked anywhere, partly because it was so difficult to instate and then reinstate these kind of measures because people stopped believing in it. In the UK, what happened, which which bears out what you're saying, is that the public became very pro the lockdowns mm-hmm. and felt obviously felt more protected. Yeah. When people say, Alison, look, the polls showed huge support for this. My reaction is that, but no one ever made the counter argument to them, which you made in Sweden, which is, if we do this, then these may be some of the pretty bad consequences. So I felt we, the public was made afraid, and then they were trapped in being afraid. And Rishi Sunak, for example, now the Prime Minister, had to have an initiative called eat out to help out, Mm. to basically bribe the public (laughs) to go back into restaurants. That eat out to help out was to try and make people less afraid and give them the confidence. And to some extent, Andres, I'm going to tell you, a lot of people in the UK have not recovered their confidence. Mm. So would you say that that's a kind of consequence of not telling them your economy is going to be very bad. You know, your children are going to have... We have in the UK one million children waiting for mental health Mm. support. Would you have predicted that when you were weighing up the alternatives? I mean, in the discussion, especially among the school closings, uh, mental health of children was very high because we know that if they're not able to go to school, uh, mental health will deteriorate. I mean, that's a known fact. There's lots of studies and evidence around that. So, of course, that was important. And we also know that this is one of the major problems with public health in Sweden these days is the mental health among our young. And we didn't really want to hurt that any more than we already did. Yeah. Yeah, that makes me feel quite emotional, I have to say, because I know children who have suffered. um, But isn't it the case that the course you were taking... It's easier for the other side to point to the deaths than it is to point to things that haven't happened yet. Isn't that the case? Yeah, and that's always the problem with many measures because the measures, they help. They, of course, will be very happy. I mean, these different um, programs we have for finding diseases early on is a classic example of that. I mean, you, you find a few people and you treat them and they're, of course, very happy. But those people, you have a false positive and go and worry for a long time and so on. They are never seen. Uh, so I think that's something you really ethically need to weigh uh, all the time, that uh, the silent majority that's going to, in different ways, suffer from what you're doing 
is never heard very much. It's only the, the extreme yeah. cases that yes. benefit from it that you hear or, or don't benefit from it. Given the speed with which the COVID vaccines were developed, was there a case for not vaccinating the parts of the population that were at little or almost no risk in terms of children and adolescents? Yeah, we ended up, there is no real case for vaccinating young children. And we didn't do that in Sweden because the benefits for that group were so marginal. And even if the side effects were extremely rare, we couldn't really be 100% sure that they didn't exist. So yes. we did not vaccinate the small children except the ones with pre-existing conditions that made them at a higher risk. And of course, they got vaccinated. Now we can see that we have a lot of excess deaths in the UK, a really large number. And Sweden is at the absolute bottom of the chart now for excess deaths. How do you account for that? What's going on there? Excess death is is a tricky measurement, like all measurements, and you should be quite careful about overstating what it actually tells you about how, how well we did doing. I believe that one thing we did that had a great effect on that was that we vaccinated very much and we did vaccinate extremely focused on the partial population with the highest risk early on. We used basically all the vaccine we got in the beginning to go into the elderly homes and vaccinate those places. So I think we, we did everything we could to get the maximum effect out of our vaccination program. And I think that has had an effect on the excess mortality over time. What do you say, obviously the defenders of lockdown will say, oh yes, but Sweden isn't a good comparison, much smaller population, more widely spread and so on. Do you think that's correct? I mean, you No, it's not correct. I mean, the Swedish population live very much focus together. I mean, it's in this area yes. in the centre, around areas. Stockholm that yes. basically all of the people live. Yes. We have a, a big population of people coming from other countries, which has proven in many countries to be a vulnerable part of the population. And we have quite a lot of people living in crowded circumstances and so on. So I wouldn't say that Sweden is an outlier. The real outliers in this is, of course, Finland and Norway, where the population is really widespread and uh, they are much less crowded. And they did well. They did very well, especially during the first wave. They did very well. Something looking forward, something that I'm quite nervous about, is there are plans to change the sort of international health regulations. The World Health Organization seems to be pushing through amendments to these international health regulations. And it seems that if they are signed and agreed, this legal document could severely restrict in a future pandemic the independent movement of a country like Sweden. Have I got the right idea? And if so, are you concerned about that? Uh, we don't know yet. Uh, I think historically countries have been very concerned about having their own possibilities to make their own choices. I would be quite surprised if we gave away to that. I think there is a lot of room for improved collaboration between countries. I mean, that was severely damaged during this time. And I think that's what we are now trying to repair, that we can be much better at keeping each other informed, making joint evaluations of different things, sharing data much quicker than we did and so on. So I think there is a number of things that can be removed. And I really hope, and what I hear, that's also what's going to be focused on. I think it's going to be very difficult to see that any supranational organization can sort of order you to have a lockdown. 
uh, I have a hard time seeing that happening. We need to really adapt our measures to how we live. And of course, that's also in Sweden. We can't have the same measures up in the, in the north where people live maybe one person per square kilometers compared to what we have in central Stockholm. Of course, you need to handle the pandemic in different ways in different parts of the country. Do you feel happy with how you did your job and that the verdict of history will be that Sweden defied the consensus and was vindicated? I don't really like to be called vindicated. And I mean, this is why? Not, why don't you like to be because called? Because this is not a competition. This no. is about public health. It's yes. about trying to do your best to keep your population as healthy as they possibly can during a health crisis. And, uh, and that's what it's all about. And I think what we learn is that we, we need to be a lot more flexible about that. You need to have different measures in different kind of places and you need to have different measures at different times during a pandemic and so on. And we can't really go down and think that we have one solution that's going to solve the whole problem. I said on Planet Normal that I was coming to meet you in Sweden and just got amazing influx of messages. Lynn says, please tell Anders he was a beacon of hope for millions of people in the UK who wished our government had followed his sensible science-based approach. Louise says, please thank Mr Tegnell. He gave people like me hope. I even bought a T-shirt with his face on it and I still wear it with pride. And Jack says, Anders, you're a legend. Anders Tegnell, I agree with that. You're a legend. Thank you so much for coming on Planet Normal. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Alison, we've had some big beasts on the podcast, haven't we, in the last almost three years of Planet Normal. I think that's right up there, a really, really important interview. And chapeau to you for inviting Anders Tegnell onto the rocket of right thinking. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please do leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps others to find the podcast so the Planet Normal family can grow. Join us next Thursday for another holiday special as we bring you more from the Planet Normal archive. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, Cass Ho and Louisa Wells. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.